Then for our Bible reading this evening, we come to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 to 34. God has spoken through Jeremiah about the coming destruction of Jerusalem because the people would not repent and turn back to God. But then Jeremiah speaks out about God's eventual restoration of Judah and Israel after their exile. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people would no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen. It was over when the Babylonian armies conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC. The ruins of the city symbolised the destruction of God's relationship with his people. The dream marriage had come to an end and the city was left deserted. The people making the long march to exile in Babylon, the ruined temple no longer occupied by the presence of the Lord where he had dwelt, in the midst of his people. It was a relationship that had been in trouble for years. There had been numerous attempts to make a fresh start, most recently when King Josiah undertook what was supposed to be wide-ranging reforms. But if you look at what the prophets had to say, it was apparent that nothing deep down had really changed at all. It was all superficial, skin-deep surface. As far as the Lord was concerned, the people had broken his covenant relationship with them. And as things stood, there really was no future for them together. There was nothing left for them to do but to part company, for them to go to Babylon and for the Lord to leave Jerusalem. And the people, well, they had issues with how God had treated them as well. There were always two sides to a broken relationship. Their complaint was summed up in a proverb that became to come a slogan for their sense of disenchantment with God. The fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth had been set on edge. That's what they were saying. We are paying the price 
for what our parents did wrong. And it's just not fair. Certainly as you read the book of Kings, it's quite clear that the blame is laid fair and square at the door of Manasseh. The king whose 55-year reign had ended 55 years before the fall of Jerusalem. But it was all his fault, as far as the writers of Kings were concerned. And the people were complaining, it's their fault, that generation. They made a mess of things for everybody else. We are inheriting the consequences of what they did. Why should we be suffering because of their sin? And as people look back on the God who made this covenant with them, they could read that he said, yes, he was a God who was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but also a God who warns that he would visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And that's what people were struggling with, because that's what had happened. They felt God was punishing them for the sins of their fathers, grandfathers and great-grandfathers, and it just wasn't fair. And we may feel they have a point. In our highly individualised culture, we have a little sense of kind of belonging together as a group of people. We have a strong sense that what I do is my responsibility. There's no sense of kind of, you know, what I do affects my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren after me. But the Israelites had this strong sense of continuity, generations belonging together. You couldn't separate the individual from the family in that way. And so we struggle with the idea that God might think it a good thing to punish children, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren for the sins of their parents. And while, yes, sometimes we can see today how problems are passed down from one generation to another and people scratch their heads how to break the cycle of poverty and, you know, crime and all this kind of stuff... It doesn't seem to be the kind of thing we would expect God to endorse or approve of. The origins of this idea of transgenerational punishment, things being passed on from one generation to the next, may be traced to a comment that Job makes on one of those occasions when he's having a bit of a rant at God. He complains, the wicked are always getting away with it. And it's no good you saying, God, that you've stored up a man's punishment for his sons... What needs to happen is he needs to suffer for what he's done now. But that's where the idea comes from. Sooner or later, there will be a reckoning for what you've done. And if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, you can reckon it will come round and bite your children or your grandchildren after you. That's the thinking behind it in Job chapter 21. The idea of God punishing children and grandchildren for the sins of the fathers may have started as a way of making it clear that no one gets away with sin. Even if the wicked seem to prosper in their own lifetime, as so often they do, eventually the consequences of that will catch up with future generations. It's a way of viewing God's justice that might serve to deter people from thinking they can sin with impunity. You can't. And if you care about your children's welfare, you won't. Andrea Ledsom seems to have some idea of what this is about. Yet as Jerusalem lay in ruins, the people trudging off into exile were still muttering, this isn't our fault. We didn't bring this on ourselves. It's all our parents' fault. In all likelihood, the complaint was unwarranted. If you read the prophets, it's quite clear that they had done more than enough to bring it on their own heads. But nevertheless, rightly or wrongly, 
they were still inclined to blame the parents. On the face of it then, it was all over between God and his people. Yet God couldn't bring himself to call it a day. There were plenty more fish in the sea, plenty of other nations he could adopt if he chose. But his attachment to Israel, despite all that had gone wrong, despite the seeming finality of sending them to exile and destruction of Jerusalem, there was too much between them for him simply to walk away. So even as Jerusalem is falling, even as the outworking of this kind of transgenerational punishment is afflicting the nation, the Lord says, look, I'm going to make a new covenant with this people. I'm going to find a way of making it work despite the fact that it all seems to be over. And this time, things will be different. This will not be yet another false start at trying to resurrect a broken relationship. This will be a new covenant. This time I'll make sure it works. For a start, he wants to knock on the head the complaint that it's simply not fair to visit the sins of the fathers on their children and grandchildren. So there's a pledge. That policy goes out the window not going to deal with you that way anymore. Henceforth, each one of you is going to be individually and personally accountable for your own sin. You eat sour grapes, your own teeth are going to be set on edge. There's no explicit mention of life after death in the new covenant, but that surely is the hidden implication of what God is saying. We will all be held accountable to God for the things that we have done. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if the consequences of our wrongdoing aren't worked out in this life, they certainly will be in the next. You do wrong, you'll be held to account for it, personally and individually. In this way, God looks to deal with his people's complaint against him, but he goes further than that. He himself offers to safeguard this new covenant by enabling his people to keep their end of the bargain. If, if, if I don't help you, you're not going to manage it. So I will give you the help that you need to enable you to be faithful to this new covenant. And where you failed in the past, God offers a fourfold guarantee that he will underwrite their shortcomings. Even if you get it wrong, I'm still going to find a way of making this work. So the first thing God promises, I will put my law in your minds and write it on your hearts. Ten commandments on tablets of stone simply hadn't done the job. Even if the people could remember them, they didn't keep them. Either their minds didn't understand what was required or if the minds did understand, their heart simply wasn't in it. External legislation that did not engage the heart or the mind, simply did not produce the behaviour that was required. All it did was set people up to fail. This is what you should be doing. Oh, you're not doing it? Well, where does that leave you then? So God says, I'm not going to write the laws on tablets of stone anymore. I'm going to write them on your hearts and in your minds. I'm going to inscribe them in your innermost being by my spirit. In effect, what God says is, I'm going to give you the will and the desire and the ability to lead the kind of life that you ought to live. 
The kind of life you can't live if, you, if I just leave you to your own devices. So by his spirit, God promises that he will shape and mould our thinking and change us from the inside out. That means that when God looks at people in whom he's working in this way, the natural thoughts and inclinations of our hearts won't only be evil all the time, which was his perspective in the days of Noah. As God writes his laws on our hearts and in our minds, our thoughts and inclinations are more likely to come from him than from our own simple nature. So the promptings that we get, the ideas that we get, the desires that we get, these can be God-inspired within us. And as God sanctifies our natural inclinations by writing his law on our hearts, we are drawn to walk in his ways and do his will. God changes us from the inside out. That doesn't make us automatons dancing to his tune as he pulls the strings. But it does mean that we are better people than we could ever otherwise be if his spirit is within us. Paul's image of the fruit of the spirit is apposite here. Without depriving us of any of our individual personality, God commits himself to work within us to produce the fruits of love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Belonging to God is definitely not about adhering to a set of rules and regulations. It is about God enabling us to become better people as his spirit works within us. So that we can say to him, I am the best version of myself when I'm with you. And it's God who makes that possible in the new deal which he offers to his people. The second guarantee is this, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what the covenant relationship is all about. From the word go, that's what God wanted. It's at the centre of his heart that we belong to him and he belongs to us. Not going our separate ways. Not estranged from each other. He longs for us to know him as our God. Not some distant, unfathomable, unapproachable deity. He wants us to know him as our Lord, as our Saviour, as our Father, as our Redeemer, as, as my God, for it to be personal. That's why Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, told them to begin by saying, Our Father. God hears our prayers Because he regards you as his child. He wants you to see that he is your God. Your creator, your saviour, your Lord. You and God belong together. And his heart is for you to be devoted to each other forever. It's all about relationship. And where the relationship is broken. And it's as if God has disowned the people and they've got no time for him. God says, actually... I'm going to rebuild the relationship so that you are glad to be known as my people and I'm glad to be known as your God. We belong to each other. Clause three, in some ways, means that I, as minister, am quite superfluous. You don't need anyone to teach you about God. The promise is that everyone will have their own direct, unmediated, personal relationship with him. I just need to get out of the way, really, 
so that you can know God for yourselves. No longer will a man teach his neighbour, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That's what Bright Road Baptist Church is all about. It's not about, you know, that Jack and I are ministers of this church. It is about the Lord who we follow. It's him we owe allegiance to. It's him we live our lives for. It's all about the Lord and we together are seeking his face. So whenever I stand up here in front of church, I do not stand here as a priest. That is a big thing in traditional Baptist thinking. It is not my role to represent God to you in any way, shape or form. Or to represent you to God. Because each and every one of you can know God for yourselves. And that knowledge of God is not restricted to a privileged elite. It's open to anyone and everyone, from the least to the greatest. When it comes to knowing God, it's a level playing field. And God wants each of us, personally, individually, to know him for ourselves. That's his great desire. And hand in hand with an individual personal knowledge of God comes individual personal accountability for how we live our lives. Each and every one of us will have to give an account of ourselves to the Lord. And that avoids the kind of scenario that took place when Josiah was on the throne. Far-reaching reforms only meeting with outward compliance as far as people were concerned. People never really engaging with God in their hearts. Brighton Road is not about securing some superficial appearance of respectability, but about a life-changing engagement with the living God through a personal relationship with him. And my role is not to try and make you conform to some Baptist model, so we're all kind of Baptist clones. My job is simply to let you know that such a relationship with God is possible and to invite you to make it real for yourself by inviting Christ into your Lord, into your life as Lord and Saviour. Each of you knowing Christ for yourselves, following his leading and guidance in your own lives. That's why in church meetings here, it's not the minister or deacons telling you what to do, because each of us actually has the Holy Spirit. Each of us has the capacity to hear what God is saying. And we listen to each other and we respect each other as people through whom God speaks. All of us having that direct access to God with nobody else standing in between. And Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes this new covenant a reality. He instigated this new covenant at the Last Supper when he gave the wine to his disciples and said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Here and now, he's saying, that promise of a new covenant is being fulfilled. I'm the one who delivers it. It's his spirit who writes God's law on our hearts and in our minds. He's the one who enables us to have this personal knowledge of God. He's the one who enables us to know God for ourselves so that we know that we belong to God and God belongs to us. And it's his blood which is shed, which secures the forgiveness of our sins. The last element in this new relationship which God offers his people, I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more.
That is God's chosen, determined response to our sin when we confess it to him. It's a promise reiterated in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't need to fear God's wrath and condemnation if we're coming before him to confess our sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has determined that he will forgive. And no matter what we might have done, Jesus guarantees that forgiveness to those who come before God in faith and repentance because the promise of that forgiveness is sealed with nothing less than the blood of God's one and only Son. God means business when it comes to forgiveness because without forgiveness, no relationship is possible. And what he wants more than anything else in the world is for us to have that kind of relationship with him where we know him personally for ourselves. We know that we belong to him and he belongs to us. He forgives you whatever lies in the past and he gives you by his spirit the desire and the ability and the will to lead a better life in the future as his spirit works in you. That's God's new deal. That's God's new covenant. Promised through Jeremiah, delivered by Jesus Christ, made available to us here and now. God effectively guarantees both sides of the covenant. When you get it wrong, I'll forgive you. I'll help you do the right thing. You'll always be my people. I'll always be your God. I'll make myself known to you. But it's still a covenant between two parties. It's still between him and us. And if we want to become part of it, we need to sign up to it. We need to say, Lord, yes, I want to be part of that new covenant. I know I need your forgiveness. I want your help to be a better person. I want to know you for myself. I want you to be my God and for me to be one of your people. How do we sign up? Simply by inviting Jesus, God's Son, into our hearts. Because when he comes... He brings God's forgiveness. He brings the presence of the living God into our hearts. He brings the assurance that we belong to him for eternity. And he brings the power of his Holy Spirit to turn our lives around. He's the one who delivers God's new covenant. makes it a reality in our lives. All we need to do is ask. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the story of your relationship with your people doesn't end with our failure. But it ends with your grace. Thank you that where our sin abounds, your grace does much more abound. Thank you for your settled determination to forgive, even to forget. Thank you for the way in which your spirit can harness our wayward hearts and instill your thoughts, your inclinations, 
your desires. Thank you that you want so much more than people who keep a book of rules. You want people who know you for ourselves as the living God. Who are glad to be known as your people. Who are glad to call on you as our God. Lord, forgive us when sometimes we take this just a little bit for granted. And Lord, we admit that often we don't value our relationship with you anywhere near as much as you do. So Lord, again tonight we ask that you forgive us. Draw us close to yourself. Make yourself known to us at a deeper level. Write your law on our hearts and enable us to live consciously as your people. For the glory of your name.